The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, April 22nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Every single Sunday that we gather together here, it's our prayer as we open up God's word that God would, by his word, together with his spirit, his spirit expose our hearts to the reality of who the real Jesus is. It's why we preach the way we preach and teach the way we teach. It's why every single Sunday when we gather together here at Holton, while we're singing, while we're teaching, there are 13 classes happening in the hallways and classrooms back there where men and women are boldly and courageously and graciously teaching God's word to our children because we want them to see the real Jesus. It's one of our highest privileges as a church to come alongside the parents in this church family, to come alongside the countless conversations and prayers that are prayed in your homes, over your food, in those bedrooms, in the stillness of the evening, to come alongside of you as you plant seeds of gospel truth in their heart that your children may too come to see and respond rightly to the real Jesus. I mean, we pray that one day, the very children that are back there this morning will be the ones that stand up here and tell and and speak and bear witness to the confidence that they have in the risen and reigning Jesus, the confidence that's compelling them to go to places like this. I mean, everything we're doing now in Central Asia is really just laying the tracks for the future generations to go. What a great thing it would be in the years to come to hear the stories of those children talk about our risen king that gives them the confidence to go to places in Central Asia to proclaim the gospel. To go to places where God would send them as he sends them from your home out into the world with the confidence of knowing the real Jesus, who he really is. It is our joy to partner with all moms and dads here to see our kids know and respond to Jesus. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but every single Sunday at Holton, so in the north side, we're not counting the 400, every single Sunday, God brings over 100 kids here. Some Sundays, it's as high as 150. And I know you're gonna go away for the summer, you're gonna go to the river, you're gonna go on vacations, you're gonna go visit family, you're gonna be here for two weeks, gone for six weeks. Guess what? Every single Sunday, there will still be over 100 kids here. Because during the summer, other families will come. They'll use that time in their year to go and to visit new churches to see if this might be a place where God would have them connect. So you know what happens? While you're gone, we still have 100 kids. And when you come back in the fall, we have even more. And I know if you're anything like me, when May approaches and the summer begins to become a reality, you begin to get a little bit commitment phobic with your time. I don't know what's going to come. I don't know what I'm going to miss. I can't commit to too much. But if you have lovingly partnered with us and served in Redemption Hill Kids, and if you've not yet responded to Ryan Burns' gracious email towards you asking about your availability for May through August, let me just encourage you to go ahead and respond to him. 
talk to him, and here's why. Right now, we do not have enough people to have our full class offering in May through August quarter. Not yet. But I know a lot of you are like me, and you're trying to figure out what's going to come here and what's going to come there. Let me just encourage you. Please, go ahead and respond to Ryan. We want to continue to partner with families here with the hopeful expectation that God will bring new life out of these seeds being planted. So please, follow up. Let him know just a few of the weeks you know that you can do it. And for those of you that have not had the opportunity to serve alongside your church family and teaching the kids here the, the glorious truth of the gospel, let me just encourage you, take that connection card that's in your worship guide, write down your name, say, I'd love to learn more about being a part of this during the summer and drop it off in the boxes. Lest you be too intimidated by this, let me just help you a little bit. We have wonderful teachers who will help you become acclimated to the classroom and how to engage with kids. And let me be even more specific with that. Young men in here, if you have not yet gotten married, if you've gotten married and you do not yet, by God's grace, have children, let me inform you of this. This is probably the best way that God will prepare you for what it means to lead and to nurture your home in his word. I was not prepared for the reality of what it meant to nurture and to lead my family in the home in God's word, even though I do this. It's an entirely different thing to stand up here with this and talk to you than to sit down with your child and do the same thing. Spending time with people learning how to communicate God's word to children is one of the most beneficial things you will ever do, not only for your future, but for your heart and present now. If you've not yet had the opportunity to do that, I would highly encourage you to do it for your own discipleship and for the, the reward of, of seeing the pennies begin to drop in the minds and the hearts of our kids, your, your church family, the children of this church. So please, if you would consider taking some time this summer to be a part of that, indicate it, drop it in the box, let us know. We will never, ever, ever grow tired of not just hearing the stories, but of working towards seeing the real Jesus made known, whether it's in Central Asia or whether it's in the hearts of our own homes. There are so many stories that God is still writing back there in those classrooms and in those hallways. We just want you to consider being a part of it. But here's the thing, it's not just our kids. It's not just unreached people groups across the world. It's not just our neighbors across the street that need to see the real Jesus and respond to him rightly. What each and every single one of us needs is an ongoing sight of the real Jesus. And I say that because if you're anything like me, and I assume that you are, because in our common humanity, we have a whole lot more in common than we do apart from each other. If you're anything like me, it's very easy to become myopic in your view of people. And what I mean by that is you can encounter someone and experience someone at one stage in life and know them in that moment and yet still five, 10, 15 years later, still only relate to them in your mind the way you first related to them. How they have changed and who they are, it's hard for you to even see because you still see them where they were. I mean, we, we planted this church 10 years ago and, and there were people who were still a part of this church who were 17 years old, freshmen in college. 
They're now nearly 30, married with multiple kids and great jobs. I still see them like they're 17. That they're still struggling with the same problems they were struggling with when they were 17. And I have this view of who they are based on my experience of them then. It's very easy for us in the church to even do this with Jesus. To become very myopic in our view of who he is. Could it be that when our hearts get get caught in this kind of spin cycle of doubt and we begin to live every single day as though the struggles that we face right now, the financial difficulties that we have, the relational dysfunction that we're experiencing, could it be that when we begin to experience those things and the doubt that accompanies them, that we're not really seeing Jesus for who he is? When we believe that those things have the last word on our reality, that somehow we're not quite rightly seeing the real Jesus, that when joy seems elusive, and in moments of honesty, we would have to admit that even as his disciples now, we would own the fact that we're really not great reflections of our heavenly citizenship here. Could it be that we've lost sight of the real Jesus? One writer, he was thinking about this, and he said, if you and I only contemplate Jesus experiencing terrible suffering on the cross, there's a danger that we might even feel sorry for him. Jesus does not want our pity. He wants our worship. He wants our adoration. He wants our celebration as the rightfully installed king of the universe. Contemplating the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus helps us to recognize Jesus for who he really is. This is why we're taking the entire month of April to consider why as Jesus' disciples, you and I should be excited about the resurrection. We want to see Jesus as he is. We want to see Jesus rightly. We want the promise of God That as we see him, God by his grace and spirit will conform us increasingly into his image and likeness. We want to see the real Jesus. So what difference then does contemplating the resurrection make in how we actually see him? You've got your Bibles, open them up to the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 24. I'm throwing a curveball at you this morning. We've spent our time so far in John chapter 20 really considering that first Easter Sunday Jesus spent with his disciples, connecting that to that last evening he was with them before the cross in the upper room, but I'm throwing you a curveball this morning. If the resurrection is, as we have been saying for the last few weeks, the most often neglected or overlooked aspect of the gospel, then the most often overlooked and neglected aspect of the resurrection is Jesus' ascension. When was the last time you considered the ascension of Jesus for your joy? For his glory. Look at Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 24. We'll begin in verse 50. Luke said that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. So what happened here? Why does it matter? And what difference does it make for us as his disciples today? 
I will be very honest with you. This is one of, those, one of the most maddeningly frustrating parts of Luke's gospel for me. Luke, the master historian, the doctor, the detail man, the guy who got all the first person accounts, all the facts, all the details, compiled his gospel account in Acts in order that we would know the life and ministry of Jesus, gives us five to nine, depending on how you break it up, verses in his gospel about how John gets his name. Gives us 10 words about Jesus' ascension. Just 10 words. Most of my ESPN fans were at the nine o'clock service, but I read this and all I can hear is Michael Irving and Chris Carter's voice in my head banging on the table. Come on, man. That is the most frustrating, maddeningly misunderstood aspect of this whole thing. 10 words. Jesus ascends into the heaven and you give me 10 words. What did it sound like? What did it look like? I mean, was it fast? Was it slow? Was it like Star Wars? You know, where the words kind of drift off into the back of the screen really slow and you can read them for a little while and then they're just gone. What happened here? Well, we can take solace in knowing this at least, that God has inspired the writing of his word, which means that he has given us everything that we need that's good for us. So, in order to not teeter on the edge of speculation and heresy, we'll look at exactly what Luke said. Luke said Jesus was carried up. Now you and I spent an entire week on Easter Sunday rejoicing in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. Here, you need to understand the physical bodily resurrected Jesus is carried up. Jesus, right now, remains today in his physical glorified body. The man, Jesus, was carried up, Luke says, to heaven. Now I'm going to keep this as simple as I can this morning because much theological ink has been spilled over the years about that right there. So I'm going to aim to be as simple and plain as I can be. What the inspired word of God just said is that heaven is real and Jesus is there. That's what it just said. Heaven is real and Jesus is there. Which means that heaven is not a state of mind that you can ascend yourself into. Heaven is not a work of our own creation that we can make here on this earth. Heaven is real and Jesus is there. And if you give yourself any time this week at all to contemplate what Luke just said and begin to dig around in God's word, you're going to understand that this is some of the best news that you could ever have for your joy because from the moment that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden for their sin, humanity was never able to enter the presence of God. But now, by virtue of Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death, the resurrected Jesus in his full humanity, lives fully and joyfully in the presence of God the Father. That's tremendous news for you and I. And we can explore that another time. But why would the ascension in itself, why should it be a source of our excitement? More specifically, look at the disciples' reaction. Look at verse 52. Luke records that they worshiped Jesus and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. 
how is the ascension of Jesus, this oft forgotten aspect of his resurrection, the most overlooked aspect of the gospel, the catalyst by God's grace for the right worship of his son and joy in our hearts? Could it be that the old Christian cliche that we can become so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good, could it be that that's actually wrong? And not just wrong, damaging to our joy? Could it be that we lack Christian joy in our hearts? Could it be that we experience so much disordered worship in our hearts because we're not heavenly minded enough? because we're not consistently gazing upon the real Jesus as he is. What if we together lifted up our gaze to consider how Jesus' ascension produces joy and the right worship of him in our lives? If we're going to do that, you've got to start by realizing something. And you have to understand this. In his ascension, Jesus was going to heaven for a very specific reason. Now the reality of that is carried in the word ascension. And so we've got to talk about how you and I understand that and what's being said here. When you and I talk about ascending, we think very physically and very spatially, right? So I'll give you an example. If you were to go to London on vacation and you were to take a tour of Buckingham Palace, if you had the right amount of money and the right guard was there, At the right time, maybe you could pay him just enough money to allow you to ascend the steps before the throne and sit down in it. Maybe. And you would have literally ascended to the throne of England. But your relationship with the people of the country is not impacted at all. But when we talk about ascending, we think very physically and spatially like that the word actually carries a much greater meaning to it in itself. To ascend, specifically here, thinking about ascending to the throne, it means that your relationship with all of the people are transformed and affected. In Jesus' ascension, everything about his present relationship with creation is changed. In his ascension, Jesus is being coronated, King of kings, Lord of lords, King in the highest possible sense beyond our capacity to even imagine. One writer said it this way, I loved it. He said, Jesus in his ascension now has a place by which he can take everything he was and everything he did as our shepherd, our servant, our substitute, everything he was and everything he did and apply the benefits and the glories of what he did everywhere, all over the place, anywhere, at any time. In Central Asia or at your dinner table even. The ascension of Jesus is the coronation of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we've got to understand what that means. Flip over to Ephesians chapter one. We've gone here a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. This is Paul, one of Paul's great prayers for the church. And I want you to hear how Paul talks about this exaltation and coronation of Jesus as he is right now. Ephesians chapter one, we'll start in verse 18. 
Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now you might remember, that's the power we talked about last week that Jesus promised in his resurrection. Part of the promise he made to his people was a new power. And we talked about that last week. So this is what Paul's referring to. But now listen to what he says next. He exerted his power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The ascension of Jesus is his enthronement as king. And the enthroned king claims sovereignty over everything. You see, it's right that we talk about Jesus as our shepherd. It's right that we talk about Jesus as servant. It's right that we talk about Jesus as sacrifice, as substitute, as example. Yes and amen. We should never lose sight of Jesus the way he is. But right now, the real Jesus is alive and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. For his glory and your joy. This is who he is. Did you catch what Paul said about Jesus' current reign as king? He said that God, in verse 22, placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for whom? What's it say? For the church. He rules over all things. He has all dominion, all authority, all sovereignty, all right, and all majesty over all things for you, for us as his people. It means that there's not a power or a principality or a subatomic molecule that is not under his authority. Friends, the enthronement and exaltation of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords is the sure confidence that every single one of us has to get on an airplane, to fly across the country to a place in Central Asia and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything is under his authority. The reality of his enthronement It's not just the foundation of our confidence in proclaiming the gospel. It is the foundation of our confidence that in all things, God is actually for you. That God is actually for you. You and I have sat with one another countless times. You've sat with friends, I know. I know friends have sat with you during difficult times. And at some point, one of you has turned to the other and said, you know what? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Do you realize that that is only good news because of the ascension? Because Jesus has been enthroned, King of kings and Lord of lords, because all authority, power, might, majesty, and dominion has been given to him and all things are under his feet, it's only because of his enthronement as King of kings and Lord of lords that you can know with confidence 
that he is working out all things together for your joy, for your good, and his glory. The ascension and enthronement of Jesus is the sure confidence that you and I have that God is actually for us in all things. So what's this King of Kings and Lord of Lords doing, as Paul said, at God's right hand? Well, literally, he said Jesus is sitting down. Did you see that? Did you you hear that when Paul was praying? What's he doing? He's sitting down. Jesus sitting down is a visual picture giving physicality to the words that he proclaimed on the cross when he said it's finished. The king of kings and the lord of lords is sitting down because the work he came to do is done. The work of atoning for our sins is complete. The record of our debt has been canceled. That Jesus is seated means he has completely atoned once for all for your life, or as the writer of Hebrews says, he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's sitting down in his authority. But I love how R.C. Sproul helps us to see exactly what this King of kings is really doing. He says that in Jesus' ascension, Jesus assumed the scepter of the king, that place of authority. But he also wore the garments of the high priest. In his ascension, our king of kings not only took his place in the palace, he took our place in the sanctuary as well. See, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter six, verse 19, that you and I have this, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That is one of my most favorite pictures in the Bible. He just said that you and I have the surest, you can't conceive of anything more sure, the surest anchor, that thing with holds you fast, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the storm, regardless of the wind, nothing can move you beyond this. You have the surest anchor for your soul to steady you. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, he says, as a forerunner on your behalf, having become for you a high priest forever. The King of kings and Lord of lords did not just ascend to the throne and take the mantle of authority, he did it wearing the garments of the high priest. Now if it's hard enough for you and I to understand what it's like to live under the authority of a king, in 21st century America, it's even harder to understand this picture of the high priest. So let me just help you understand what's being said here. For the readers, the original hearers of this letter, the writer of the Hebrews was using a very, very rich picture. He was using some Old Testament imagery. The high priest is an office ordained by God who would act as the representative of God's people before God. He was the one who would would stand between God and the people. He would wear even a a, a robe, a cloak, a a breastplate that God had ordained for him to wear that was covered in 12 jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He would carry God's people even on his chest where he would go. He represented them before God. And on the most holy day of the year, the day of atonement, this high priest, he, he would make an offering on behalf of himself and the people. 
And as he would prepare to do that, he would cleanse himself. He would make himself ritually pure on behalf of the people. He would take an animal and he would lay his hands on it. He would confess his sins and he would confess the sins of the people. He would offer a sacrifice to God as a symbol of God's judgment on the sins of his people. And he would take the blood of that sacrifice and he would go back behind the veil into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was manifest on earth. And there, taking God's people even on his chest, he would intercede on behalf of the people. And what the writer, the book of Hebrews just said is that this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who rules and reigns right now with all majesty, all dominion, all power and all authority, he put on the cloak of the high priest and he now mediates between us and God forever. He consecrated himself by his perfect life. He offered a sacrifice on our behalf, his own body and his own blood. Jesus became the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. When you and I sing songs like, what wondrous love is this? Oh my soul, oh my soul. What's more wondrous than this? That on the cross, in the body, in the man Jesus, God satisfied his justice by substituting himself for us. God the Father was willing to give up God the Son. And God the Son was willing to give himself up. And three days later, as we've been celebrating, Jesus rose from the dead. But afterward, he ascended to the most holy place. The risen Jesus entered into God's holy presence. And there now, as King of kings and Lord of lords, he intercedes as our high priest forever on our behalf. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25 that this King of kings and this Lord of lords, this mediator between us and God, he says that he lives to intercede for us. Now to help you understand exactly what he's saying, think of how many times you've told somebody else what you live for. You live for your kids, you live for your job. You live to get to that concert, you live to get to that sporting event. What you're saying is those things are what are shaping your priorities. Those things are what are stirring your affections. Those things are what stir your passions. That's what you live for. The writer to the book of Hebrews just said in Hebrews 7.25 that the king of kings and lord of lords lives to make intercession for his people. Right now, the risen and reigning king willingly and joyfully makes intercession for us, for you, by name. And yet we wonder so often if we really matter to God. Could it be in those moments when that spin cycle of doubt is stirring? Could it be that we have just not set the gaze of our hearts on the real Jesus as he is? Friends, there could be no better news than the exaltation of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it would be utterly unloving of me to not help you understand why. You see, a day is going to come 
when this King of Kings and Lord of Lords is going to return. And when he returns, he will carry all authority. He will carry all right. He will execute the judgment of God. In fact, in Paul's most famous sermon, Acts chapter 17, Paul says the time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. God has already fixed in his purposes and plans a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness and he's gonna do it by a man that he's appointed, Paul said. Someone he's chosen. And Paul goes on to say this, of this, he's given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A day is going to come when Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is going to return and he's going to return as judge. And on that day, every single one of us will come face to face with the real Jesus. And that day will either be glorious, if you have repented of your sins and fixed your heart upon Jesus who now stands as your mediator before God, or it will be utterly terrible. Friends, you do not have to face this day of judgment in fear. What Paul was proclaiming, what we proclaim every single week is that you can know the certain love of this king. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the one with all majesty, dominion, and authority, the one who lives to intercede for his people. You can know the certain love of that king. You don't have to live in fear of the day that you're gonna face him and have to give an account for your life and whether or not you've earned his love. You can know for certain of his love for you. For all, Paul says, who repent of their sins, who recognize their own efforts at self-righteousness and justification, who have bought the lie thinking that you're going to be able to justify before God why you should be with him for eternity. For all who have repented of that, and place their certain hope and confidence in the risen and resurrected Jesus who died in your place for your sin and was raised to new life for your justification and lives now to intercede for you. You don't have to face that day in fear. You can know the certain love of Jesus on that day, but even more, you can know the certain love of this King for you now. You and I, as Jesus' disciples, get the tremendous privilege and opportunity to help one another daily to set the gaze of our hearts on the real Jesus as he is. You see, to the degree that, that you and I can help one another fix the gaze of our hearts on Jesus as he is, the ruling and the reigning king, you and I can increasingly come to know in our hearts his certain love for us now. You see, the confidence that you can have that God does indeed love you, that you are his, that you indeed matter to him, you need to understand that that confidence is grounded in the one that sat down. The confidence to know that God loves you, it's not found in how you feel. It's not found in how many books you've read. It's not found in how many verses that you've memorized. It's not found in your emotions, the high days or the low days. The confidence that you can have, 
that the King of kings and Lord of lords is indeed for you now and forevermore is rooted in the sure reality that he sat down. Jesus, as our risen King and High Priest, it means that our confidence to approach the throne of the king doesn't rest on ourselves. It rests in him. And there is no greater security in that. There's no greater security you could ever come up with better than that. Is it any wonder that seeing the real Jesus the risen, resurrected, reigning, King of kings and Lord of lords, interceding for his people on our behalf, is it any wonder that the response of seeing the real Jesus is joy and worship? See, joy is what happens when you know Jesus as your king and as your savior. Joy is what happens when you grasp who he is and why he came and where he is now. You and I can come up with a lot of reasons as to why we shouldn't be very happy today. If I gave everyone a chance and we went around the room and said, give me two reasons why it's justified for you to not feel joyful or happy today, it would take a full 24-hour cycle to get through it. And the reality of it is, if we hitch our idea of our well-being and our happiness to our circumstances, joy will always be elusive. But Christian joy is very different than the happiness that so many of us try to chase. Christian joy is not tethered to our circumstances. It's not tethered to our hardships. It's not tethered to what others say about us. Christian joy is built on knowing the real Jesus. See, the fact that Jesus is in heaven right now, ruling and reigning with all authority, gives you and I right now the sure and steadfast hope, the anchor of the soul that transcends all of our daily troubles. It helps us to see and actually believe that all of those frustrations and all of those sorrows and all of those circumstances, they don't get the last word. And you and I are living as though what everyone else says and all the difficulties that we face somehow get the last word on life. We're not seeing him for who he is. The risen and resurrected Jesus right now, King of kings and Lord of lords, is sure and certain steadfast hope that these things don't get the last word. He is the root of real joy. Worship. Have you ever considered that the early church was willing to die because they knew who the real king was and they actually believed that he was worth dying for? Seeing the real Jesus changes everything. There's a story in David's life where his men came to him one time and they said, David, you're worth 10,000 of us. They recognized who David was. They recognized his position. They recognized his authority. And they said, you're worth 10,000 of us. Friends, how much more so is our heavenly king worth? Seeing him there, seated, enthroned, king of kings and lord of lords, for his glory and your joy. How much easier should it be for you and I to surrender our ambitions and our plans to him? 
seeing him for who he is and gazing upon the real Jesus rightly. It makes, it makes the sound of being counted worthy to suffer for his name sound entirely different. Seeing Jesus for who he truly is, it's seeing the real king and knowing that he's worthy. The only appropriate response to a king like this is worship. What else or, or who else is worthy to be the center of your affection in your life? I mean, what else or, or who else is worthy of the surrender of your heart and the bending of your knee? What else or who else went to the cross and died in your place for your sin, was accepted by God and raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of, of God with all authority, majesty, and dominion for your good? What else? Who else? Getting in a picture, in the eyes of our hearts, getting sight of the real Jesus as he is, it changes everything. Friends, you and I, we need to lift up our gaze. We need to help one another as, as much as we can, as long as it's today to lift up our eyes, to look up and see the real Jesus enthroned. All majesty and authority and dominion under his feet for us. We need to see the real Jesus and we need to look forward to when the real Jesus is going to come and welcome us into his presence forever, sharing in the fullness of his glory. We don't want part of Jesus. We don't want an aspect of Jesus. We don't want a character of Jesus. We want to see the real Jesus and respond to him rightly. And as we prepare this morning to respond to God's word, we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on what you have heard. And as you do, I simply want you to consider this. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, God has given us the kind of king that he intends to be our greatest treasure. This is the kind of king that we have. Not only have we seen his power on display, defeating Satan, sin, and death, but as Peter said, we've tasted and we know he's good. He's the kind of king that God intends to be our treasure. As Paul says, he is the Lord. He is king. He is Jesus Christ, who has loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So I want you to take these two minutes and I want you to ask God to open up the eyes of your heart to help you see the real Jesus. To see Jesus this morning in his fullness that you might respond to him rightly. For some of you that means responding to him in repentance. It means owning your sin, confessing your sin, confessing your own desire to be your own self-righteousness, your own savior and your inability to do so and calling upon him as your king and as your savior. For others, it's going to mean because you have tasted of his grace through repentance, you're gonna ask him to show you anew the fullness of his son that you might be reminded just how good he really is. 
And then together, for those who have repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus as King and Savior, we're going to remember his sacrifice in our place, celebrate his resurrection from the dead and his enthronement as King, where he intercedes for us by receiving communion, remembering his sacrifice in our place. We're going to sing. We're going to worship him. We're going to use the mouths and the bodies he's given us to make much of him because he's worthy. And then we're going to be sent out from him to be his people in this place. So let me pray, and then we'll respond together. Father, we thank you this morning that you don't hold back from us anything necessary and good for your glory and our joy. And so we're asking, don't hold back. Show us the fullness of your son. Don't hold back. Show us the fullness of the risen, resurrected king. Lord, we want to see Jesus fully and completely as he is right now. We want to be conformed and transformed progressively by your spirit into his image and likeness. God, help us to see him. Help us to not be satisfied by anything less. Help us to see the real resurrected Jesus rightly that we might respond to him with our whole hearts as he deserves. We ask this in his name for his glory and our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.